So, um, what? How do you how do you handle it when you um, when you have an injury? Do you do you ignore it? Do you medicate it? Do you do physical rehab of some kind? I have a I have an ongoing issue with my back, and so I've tried a lot of different things. But but one thing I don't do when my back starts acting up is you know say you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna like get rid of my back I'm gonna I'm gonna cut it off I'm gonna take it away uh, I'm going to do without that back because it's not acting right and in this passage it's really interesting it's easy to get caught up on the uh, the judgment and the, the the hellfire which we will talk about today Unfortunately, fortunately, whatever, however you want to think about it. But um, there's this whole incredible theology in this passage, and it's in other parts of the scriptures, and we'll take a look at some of them. But Jesus is telling us that when we serve another human being, especially someone who is actually in deep need, that we are serving Jesus. And that is because in Christian theology from Jesus and others, there is this idea that we partake of every week, that we are partaking of the body of Christ, and that in the crucifixion, in the death, in the dissection of the body of Jesus, we have all been invited into one single mystical union in Christ, in the body of Christ. And so that when you serve another human being, it is the same as if you are serving God because we belong. The, it's like you're just fixing your back, your own back. You're just feeding your own stomach. You are just looking in the mirror and tweezing your own eyebrows. I don't know why that one came to me. I saw it coming and I said, I'm just going to keep going. I, I, it's coming in my mind and I'm going to keep going. But that idea is here in this passage. And it, I find it really interesting because one of the tasks of being human is first to find our own personal identity. In the beginning, we don't have that. When we're born, we're literally a part of our mom. And then we're born, and, and in the first few years of life, at least what the psychologists say, is we don't really yet have a sense of self, that our self is, is merged with the self of our mother, our caregiver, or our father, and that over time, you know, when toddlers start emerging in human development, they start breaking away. They start running from their mom. Uh, Benjamin, my firstborn, used to say out loud when he was doing it, he would narrate it. He'd say, run away from mommy. He would say that. Uh, and, he would, and he would run. And, and that's normal human development is now I'm separating. I'm detaching from my parent and I'm becoming my own person. And then you get into high school and you say, it's not a phase, mom. I'm, I'm going to be like this for the rest of my life. You ever seen the meme of like a goth person in their 40s? And it says, it wasn't a phase, mom. 
right? But there were all kinds of things that I said when I was a teenager. Like I, there was a moment where I was really into video games and there was like this video game culture. And I'm like, I'm a gamer, mom. Like that's just who I am. <laughs> but that would not be cool right now as a 40 year old if I was just like, that, that's what I'm doing instead of taking care of my kids and my family. It's like, that's my identity. I'm a gamer. I'm not saying you can't play video games. I'm not making fun of anybody who plays video games. I'm just saying we go through all this effort to distinguish ourselves, to find a personal identity, but that is not the end point of human beings. In fact, I've learned about this a lot over the years in, uh, in therapy and in marriage therapy. Why am I saying it like that? Like couples therapy, um, uh, and, and what, what, what I learned and what I've been experiencing is the more sense of self that you have to bring to a marriage, the stronger that union between the two people actually becomes. And so it's the strength of the individual coming to something greater than that that makes a stronger unity. Just like if you exercise the parts of your body, if you keep having uh, a back injury, uh, you go to a physical therapist and they'll say, well, you gotta work out all these different, you actually need to work out your core muscles too because your back is, is, is uh, overcompensating, the injury in your back is overcompensating, making the muscles, where's Mark Minyard, help me, weaker in your stomach, right? Um, and so the task of a human being is to go from being totally no sense of self to de then developing a sense of self and then giving that defined sense of self back to the whole. And that's the passage here that we see. That's what we see the theology coming about here, but it's, it goes beyond really anything that had been taught or seen or understood at that time because so much of the identity of human beings had been around what we are and who we are different from. And so it was a frozen, it's not a phase mom stage for human beings. And I'd say probably the vast majority of humanity still dies in just defining ourselves against something else that we are not. And that means we've left the task of being a full and whole human being unfinished. And that's what coming to this table every Sunday is meant to remind us of, to remind us that the task isn't finished until we can bring ourselves to the greater whole, the body of Christ. We say that phrase, we say the body a lot. Those of us, you know, who grew up in church, we say the body, you know, the body. But the meaning of it is so incredibly profound and so incredibly important to the task that we have as human beings. So let's bring that to this text as we, as we look at this. I'm going to kind of set it up here so we can talk a little bit more about that. Uh, so in the first verse, this is in a whole 
collection of passages and Ben preached on one, the one before this last week and I preached on the one before that the week before we've been in this Matthew chapter 25 where the disciples are asking Jesus, what's it gonna be like? What's the end gonna be like? What's, what's the, the telos, the finishing, the perfection of all this that you're teaching us? Where is it all going to? And Jesus is sharing this collection of stories and parables and metaphors to describe it to them. And so this is kind of the pinnacle one. And we see Jesus coming and sitting on a throne. So it's Christ the King Sunday. And so verse 31 says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. So we see that picture of not just Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter who bumped around a couple hundred miles from where he was born on foot in his sandals, but we see this glorious king flanked by angels sitting on a big throne. And so we have Jesus established here in our spiritual mind's eye as the ruler, as the one, as the president, as, as the, the, the greatest authority in the universe. That's the picture we're getting here. And then in verse 32, it says, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So everybody is there. The whole world is there in this picture. All nations, every type of people, every little island group of people that we don't even know about yet to, you know, all, all the European folks, all the Americans, everybody's there, all the people. And he starts to divide people up into just two categories, the sheep over here, the goats over here. Sorry, y'all. Um, and because uh, you don't want to be a goat in this, in this scenario. And so then you wonder, with all those ethnicities, all those nationalities, all those types of people, why just the two categories? Where in the world would, ever, would, would anybody ever separate all those different types of people into just two categories? And so we're already meant to start thinking about what is going on here. And he's hearkening back to all types of language from the Old Testament of God as shepherd. And there's different passages that would be evoked in his listeners who would be familiar with this and say, oh yes, of course, God is, God is shepherd. And so he's setting that up. And listen to this, look, we'll put those verses back up if, yeah, put them back up because there, there's this subtle change in the language from verse 32 to 33. He said, he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then in 33, he's, it says, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So it's like, we started with, it's like the sheep and the goats. And then in the next verse, it's like, we're actually seeing the animals here in this, in this metaphorical apocalyptic picture. Apocalypse meaning the unveiling, how things finish when the curtain has been pulled up and we can see behind the curtain and we see the way things really are. And so then uh, Jesus goes into this whole uh, incredible uh, kingly speech of come you who are blessed by my father take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world and it's like wow what did they do to get to be in that situation and then he says well you fed me 
and gave me something to eat and gave me something to drink and clothed me and invited me in. When I was sick, you took care of me. And when I was in prison, you came and visited me. And of course, these sheep are confused. They're like, we never saw you doing that. And even if we did, we have hooves instead of hands. So we can't really do all of those types of things. And so Jesus says, when you did it to one of the least, some translations say just the least of the family, then you did it for me. The NIV says the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. That, uh, that word in the Greek is adelphos, and it has a lot of meanings that basically boil down to different types of ways of describing family. A brother, when born to the same parents, or at least one parent, having the same national ancestry, belonging to the same people, the same countrymen, uh, a, a fellow human being, a fellow believer, even uh, somebody who works with you. That's the meaning of those words. But when I read this in the lectionary and the word family was used in the translation that we were reading, I, I paused and I thought about this passage a little bit differently than I had before, that um, all these nations are here in this passage. And up until this point, what we see in the Bible is the Jewish people. And the Jewish people were started through one guy and one woman, Abraham and Sarah. And so their children, their blood children became the Jewish people, became eventually the 12 tribes of Israel. And that is where Jesus is situated right in all of that context, in all of that family. And Jesus is now saying, hey, in this picture, in this vision that you're seeing of the end, that when I'm talking to the whole world, everybody, that I will say this, that when you fed someone, when you clothed someone, irregardless of their ethnicity, of where they find themselves coming from, what they look like, that that is the same thing. When you feed that needy person, when you clothe that needy person, that is the same as if you've done that to me. I was talking on Thanksgiving, we're just having a little light conversation about, um, you know, uh, colonialism and, um, you know, why genocides are committed and morality and atheistic countries and things like that. I didn't start the conversation, by the way. I didn't, I really didn't. I was getting down on some turkey. Um, and sweet potato casserole, any fans? Sweet potato casserole, that, that's my all-time favorite uh, Thanksgiving meal. So we were talking about that, and we are talking about certain countries that are more mono ethnic and it seems like, wow, they've really got it together. They've really got these incredible morals. And I was just wondering out loud, but what would happen if the refugees started showing up at their shores and you started being faced with people that look different, that spoke different languages, and you see the people winning elections in different parts of Europe right now that are open, openly hostile 
to whoever the other is, the, the Muslim or the, the other ethnic groups and those kinds of things. And here Jesus is, is, is bringing together all these people and he's saying, with my kingdom and in my world, you can't make a scapegoat out of somebody that just looks different or talks different or sounds different than you. You're not, you're not, you can't do that. The ultimate reality of things doesn't actually work like that. And I, just to bring this real close to home, for me, it comes right up to my front door all the time. Because something that I've found as I've learned more about myself is sometimes the people that annoy me most in my life remind me of me. That, that if I was really to get real honest with myself, I'm like, oh, I, just kinda, I don't really like that person. They kind of, you know, bother me, rub me the wrong way. And if I really get real honest with myself and I follow that trail all the way down, it's because there's some unreconciled part of me internally, something that I have not been able to give up to God, to make peace with, to have reconciled and redeemed. I use that word twice on purpose, um, that when I see it in the other person, it does something inside of me. I know none of y'all act that way, right? You don't, you wouldn't do those types of things. I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a really a personal example just because I, I, I really want you to, to reflect on this with me. Um, my oldest son, Benjamin, is extremely physically affectionate and he wants hugs and stuff all the time. And I just, I'm not reconciled with that inside of myself. And so he'll come and he'll hug on me and lean on me. And we were doing some family stuff yesterday and he leaned on me and I just felt so uncomfortable inside. And, uh, and he's huge too. He's, he's almost five foot and he's nine years old. So it's also kind of like, he's, he's just nine, but it feels like, like I've had girlfriends bigger than like the same size as like smaller. He's like 120 pounds already. Um, and so he's leaning on me and I'm, I'm at least aware, you know, and I'm not like telling him, get off me, man, you can't do that. You know, I'm not doing those things, but on the inside, there's some turmoil inside of me. Anybody with kids, you ever felt something like that where they're like, they, they're crying or they're asking for something and it's just, it's something real deep inside and you just are like, I don't know why, but I don't like my child in this moment or I just want to get away from them or something like that. But it doesn't have to be with a child. It could just be with a friend. It could be with a coworker. It could be with a, definitely a spouse. If, if you're married, it is happening with your spouse. I promise you that. So, if we are to take this theology and this logic seriously, when we hurt or harm somebody out of that unreconciled, unreflected place within us, which is almost always what we're doing in wars, in, in, in uh, institutional racism and poverty, in, uh, in revenge against friends or people we love, we are actually committing self-harm in those moments. And I know 
that uh, could be a triggering thing to say because some of us do struggle with self-harm. And really, if we were to get real, real um, granular about it, real nitpicky about it, we, we all have some kind of self-harming behaviors most likely where we don't treat ourselves the way that we could, where we're not as kind to ourselves as we could be. And we see here that Jesus is reorienting the human story to say the least of these, the one that reminds you of the parts inside of you that feel helpless, that feel afraid, that can't seem to pull themselves up by their bootstraps or get done the things you need to get done on Saturday or get your budget balanced or stop saying those mean things when you're angry or raising your voice or whatever it is that you might be struggling with, that those, uh, those ways that we are un unreconciled in us are the same ways that we project that out onto other people who are really part of us according to to this theology, according to this way of being in the world. We read earlier, Amanda read it out loud in another of the scriptures from the lectionary from Ephesians. And this is very present in this passage in Ephesians. It's talking about, and we can put it on the screen, that the writer Paul is saying, asking, hoping, praying that the hearers of this letter, that they're eyes of their heart might be enlightened, okay? So this is not a logic type of thing that you can just figure out A plus B equals C. This is a mystical, spiritual knowing, the eyes of your heart being enlightened, that you would know the riches of the glorious inheritance in his holy people. The inheritance is the people and the power for us who believe, and that it's the same power that it was exerted when Christ was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand in the heavenly realms. And of course it would be because we are the body of Christ. So of course it would be the same power working in the resurrection of Christ that is resurrecting the possibility that we could find the wholeness of ourselves in this whole global community. MLK would speak of it as the single garment of destiny that we are all interwoven into together. And it goes on and says that this place where Christ is seated in his resurrection is far above all other rule or authority, power, dominion, and every name that is invoked in the present and the future. And then I want us to zero in on these two verses. Right after that, in 22 and 23, it says, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's an impossible thing to grasp without the enlightenment of your spiritual heart. And maybe we only get to grasp it in small doses a lot of times. I think there's some of the saints throughout history who grasped it, grasped it on such a deep level that it transformed their whole way of thinking about reality. 
we have the prayer of St. Francis on, uh, a prayer of St. Francis on one of our prayer cards back there. And St. Francis started his own order in the Catholic Church. And one of the things that St. Francis did during one of the Crusades where the, quote, Christians and Muslims were fighting each other for land, St. Francis and a band of his, his merry followers unarmed crossed enemy lines to go talk to the Sultan uh, Salahuddin during one of the uh, during one of the, the, the wars and in, in, in one of the battles. And they, they got St. Francis and his guys, they saw that they were unarmed and stuff. And they're like, hey, we just want to share the gospel with the king. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to beat the crap out of you. So they beat him up and then they dragged him before the king. And St. Francis actually ministered to the sultan who was at war representing the Muslims and then at war with all the, the Christian warriors. And so inside of this dualistic thinking where the idea was if we could destroy the people that are different than us, then we would flourish. If we could have a back surgery and cut out our vertebrae, then we would really enjoy life. And in the midst of that, here comes St. Francis, you know, just going right through all these people with swords and shields and all the people behind him thinking this is what's going to solve things. And so we need a deeper enlightening of our heart to realize that the people we think are the problem is really a reflection of the unreconciled parts of us. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17, Paul is talking about coming to the communion table and he says this, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share one loaf. This is what we participate in every week. This is, this is why for before the Protestant Reformation for 1500 years, the, the pinnacle of every Christian gathering was the bread and the cup of wine to remind us in hopes that the enlightening of our hearts would help to be communicated as we ate and drank together and to know that Salahuddin and St. Francis and Pope so-and-so and, -so and uh, Hamas and, and the government of Israel are all invited to this same table. A very difficult thing to live, to practice. Another passage, I'm hitting you with a lot of scriptures this morning. Um, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 through 21 says this, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. And I want to remind you, who was there in Matthew 25? How many folks were there? The brothers and sisters. Who were those people? It was everybody, the whole world family. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God. Why? Because God is in us. We are all the part of the body of Christ whom they have not seen. 
And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their family, their brothers and sisters. When the mystery folds back, when the apocalypse happens, the unveiling, we find ourselves in one another and we find God filling all of us. And so then let's spend a couple minutes talking about this ending here, as much as I just would love to skip it. Um, verse 41 through 45 uh, says this, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, gave me nothing to eat and so on and so forth. You didn't do any of this stuff. And of course, the people are surprised. What do you mean? When did we see you, God, the enthroned one, the greatest and most majestic, the ruler of all? When did we see you in these lowly positions in the neediness of being human? And he said, you saw it when you saw the least of these, when you saw the hungry, when you saw the sick and the tired. That was me. I was there in them. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteousness to eternal life. Um, when I was uh, probably about 18 or 19 to 20-ish in those, in those three years or so in there, um, I would go to bed every night and I would try to remember all the sins I committed and I would try to confess them. And uh, then try to fall asleep after that. And uh, good thing I, I used to be a heavy sleeper, so it worked out okay. Uh, and that a lot of my spiritual energy was used up for that. And when I was a child, my dad, and he had good intentions, he told me and my brothers, if you're not sure that you believe Jesus died for your sins, if you don't know that you know that you know that you know, you will go to hell and you will be with the devil and fire for the rest of eternity. And I can remember there was this night and it was literally weeping and gnashing of teeth where my dad wanted to make sure he had set us straight on that. And I don't know when, if it was before or after that, but I was afraid that the devil could come up from the ground when I was sleeping in my bed. And I also remember um, this Liberian guy that lived with me in the community house I lived in for a while. He uh, had learned about uh, Christianity and he was kind of living kind of wild and stuff. He had a, the most traumatic upbringing I, I, I could imagine um, he was he was like a he was like a, a slave, and he escaped, and he was in the United States, and um, and he felt the condemnation and the shame voices of the whole narrative of his life, and for him that was just God, and he was like not being around a whole person like a. Like a real, he just thought at any moment God was literally going to strike him with lightning or kill him in some type of way because of the things that he had 
done or said or lived. Now, eventually, there's actually, I saw a picture of it on Thanksgiving at the community house that we were at. There was a picture of me baptizing him. And there's a beautiful uh, arc to that story. But at the time, he was so crippled by fear and judgment, he really wasn't living. And I remember trying to get a hold of this and, and grasp this because at 21, I, I dedicated my life to the Lord. And then within, in less than a year of that time, I saw this movie uh, that's had a resurgence in popularity recently called Constantine. And it's based on this comic book character and he visits hell different times in the story. And that image of hell so captivated me, I was losing sleep. And I was trying to reconcile that with my faith at the time. And it was very traumatic time for me. And then a couple years later, I read this book about this guy who said he visited hell called 23 Minutes in Hell. And guess what I did? I lost a lot of sleep again after reading that because it was, it was way worse than anything you read in the Bible. I mean, it was just like, uh, you know, just, hey, all the horror movies, let's just put it all in this big pot and stir it up and, and, and put it in a book. And um, so I bring, I, br I brought all of those things uh, with me into even looking at this passage, those memories and things like that. And, um, and it's really hard. I was thinking about these uh, sermons that we had earlier in the year called How, How to Use the Bible um, and, and these passages in scripture here that we didn't talk specifically about these, but I think it's a helpful connection because I'm not going in deep because we're, we're, we have to wrap this up um, in a few minutes here. But I'm just telling you those things because I don't think that that was God in those things. In fact, I don't have any doubt about it, really. I'm just, I, it's not an unresolved thing for me. It feels completely resolved. I feel completely at peace with that. And the hard part here is that in the Gospel of Matthew, we have the voice of Jesus in this parable sending people into eternal punishment. But here's the part that is really difficult for me based on everything else that's come out of my mouth and every other scripture I've read this morning, is isn't that like cutting off part of your own body at that point? How will God fill all things and be in all things through the reconciliation, reconciling power of Jesus if the vast majority of folks are being cut off? And, and I also can't reconcile it with these other passages I read from 1 John earlier. 1 John 4 says this, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. 
So can I respond with love when it's fear of punishment that is driving the love? It's not motivating for me at all. What I preached on the past 35 minutes was what is motivating to me, to know that when I serve a, 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 a person in need who is showing up with the same neediness I have inside of me, that I'm serving the body of Christ, God, that I'm part of this mystical union and whole of creation, that I am fulfilling the task of my life that I was born to do, to separate, to find out who I was and to rejoin as a whole human being into the cosmic reality. What I'm not telling you right now is that you don't, you, you have to not believe in hell. You can believe in hell. And uh, there's lots of Christians that really believe in hell um, and believe it's eternal and believe it is constant torture. Um, but for me, that's no longer captivating or motivating in any way, shape or form for me. And I don't think that I believe that God would do that. And I'm not telling you to believe that. Um, here's, a, here's a quote from, from Richard Rohr uh, based on these ideas. He said, unfortunately, it's much easier to organize people around fear and hatred than around love. Powerful people prefer this worldview because it validates their use of intimidation, which is quite effective in the short run. Both Catholicism and Protestantism have used the threat of eternal hell, hellfire to form Christians. Uh, so, I didn't, mm, just y'all, give me three more minutes, okay? Just three more minutes. All right. If you have a different view, closer to the one I'm expressing, you're an incredibly deep and rich company. I wanna to read to you a few different views of some of the ancient church fathers in the first several centuries of Christianity and some of their viewpoints on this topic of, of hell. Uh, so Augustine, ever heard of him? He's pretty formative in, in Christian uh, theology. Um, so Augustine lived in 354 to 430. And he's, he's of African descent, one of the four great uh, Afro church fathers. Uh, and he said, there are very many in our day who though not denying the Holy Scriptures do not believe in endless torments. Origen, who lived in 185 to 254, he founded a school in, in Caesarea and he's considered by historians as one of the, the greatest theologians and scholars of the Eastern Church. In one of his books, uh, De Principis, he wrote, we think indeed that the goodness of God through his Christ may recall all his creatures to one end, that is salvation, even his enemies being conquered and subdued, for Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So the, so the meaning there is that the end goal, the only possible thing that could happen through Christ is the reconciliation of, of everyone, of every human being. 
Um, so St. Jerome uh, lived from 331 to 420, said, in the end and consummation of the universe, all are to be restored to their original harmonious state, and we all shall be made one body and be united once more into a perfect person, and the prayer of our Savior shall be fulfilled that all may be one. Gregory of Nicaea, 335, 390, for it is evident that God will be, will in truth be all in all when there shall be no evil in existence, when every created being is at harmony with itself and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord, when every creature shall have been made one body. And here's the last one I wanted to read. Uh, this is from a conversation between St. Cillian and a monk, um, uh, Steretz, monk and a hermit. And this was in the 1800s. There was a certain hermit who declared with evident satisfaction, God will punish all atheists. They will burn in everlasting fire. Obviously upset, Steretz said, tell me, supposing you went to paradise and looked down and saw somebody burning in hellfire, would you feel happy? It can't be helped. It would be their own fault, said the hermit. Then Steretz answered him with a sorrowful countenance. Love could not bear that, he said. We must pray for all. And so for me, the tension here with the text is that there are these first John passages that say perfect love and fear of punishment don't go together. And there are many, many church fathers and saints and church mothers that had perspectives like this one. And for me, that also it's not, it doesn't motivate me in any way. I don't have any energy about it personally. And I didn't know what I wanted to share about this. And I know it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving. It, Pope, Pope Pius XI, blame him. He's the one who put Christ the King Sunday into the lectionary right after Thanksgiving. Um, but uh, but I, I wanted to share honestly with you about how I see the scriptures, how that's informed by the history of the church fathers and what my internal state is like when it comes to this and what motivates me as a as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, that I am motivated to see the entire world reconciled to God and that we are all part of one body and that's what I want to be able to care for myself and for you and for anyone else and a place that we can all belong and a place that we can know God in that way. So uh, let's get ready to come to the table for communion. God, thank you for your word, uh, for the way that it speaks to us, for the way that we uh, are able to engage with you in our hearts and minds. Would you shape us and transform us through it and through the table? Amen.